Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 6, Coffee vs. Beer. I want to start with a brief update about the podcast. Moving forward, the show may shift into bi-weekly episodes, as weekly episodes have become quite a bit to keep up with. As we gain more support on Patreon, my goal is to make this project more than just a hobby, with an aim of getting back to weekly episodes in the future. Thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast so far. We have new member episodes on tea, chocolate, and wine coming soon. Now, let's get into the episode. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Today, I'm trying a cold brew peaberry coffee from Kauai. So, for those of you who don't know, peaberry coffee is a special type of bean. It's about 10% of beans have a deformed shape and it kind of looks like a pea as opposed to the regular shape which a coffee bean would look like. So normally there's two coffee beans inside of every coffee cherry, but in the case of peaberry coffee, there's only one. So let me start by smelling this. So it has a very roasty smell, sort of a sweet smell as well. Kind of a smooth aroma to it though. Let's go ahead and try tasting it. So it has a very bitter flavor to it. It's very roasty. Kind of has a very intense flavor profile. Almost a little bit of chocolatey going on, a little bit of roasty. I'm going to be pairing this with a chocolate chip muffin. So let me go ahead and try some of this chocolate muffin and see what that does to the flavor. So the chocolate from the muffin definitely brings out more of the chocolatey notes from the coffee itself. But I also noticed that the bitter taste of the coffee sort of makes the chocolate taste like a like a dark chocolate, even though it's more of a milk chocolate flavor that you're getting from the muffin itself. I think I would recommend this coffee as a hot brewed coffee, as that's how I had tried it before. Um, but certainly, I liked a lot of the coffees that I got to try when I was out at the Kauai Coffee Company, which is the largest coffee plantation in the United States. And for those of you who are curious what it looks like, I'm going to be making a video about my trip to Kauai here soon and putting it up on our YouTube page. Last episode, we mentioned the bourbon strain of coffee which was created by France after they took seeds from mocha and planted them in bourbon. So this episode, I wanted to talk about some of the primary strains of coffee plants. To start, as we know, there are two main species of coffee plants, Robusta and Arabica. Arabica is then broken up into varietals, the main two being bourbon and typica, and two smaller but still important ones are Katura and Katui. The latter two were developed later by Brazil, so we will come back to them when we reach Brazilian coffee history. For now, let's understand bourbon and typica. Typica grows well in most regions and produces a higher yield than bourbon. Bourbon requires higher maintenance and produces a lower yield. So why grow bourbon? Because it is a better tasting coffee. Like wine, some coffee consumers are more connoisseurs, preferring a more complex flavored coffee. Another advantage for bourbon in the modern period is a better resistance to coffee leaf rust, a devastating fungus which we will be discussing in future episodes. 
while berries crackle or while mills shall go, while smoking steams from silver spout shall glide, or China's earth receive this apple tide. While coffee shall to British nymphs be dear, while fragrant steams the blended head shall cheer, our grateful bitter shall delight the taste, so long her honor's name and praise shall last. These lines of poetry are from Scottish poet Robert Caruther's Life of Pope, which he wrote after inhaling steam from a coffee in hopes of finding relief for his headaches. Many people today drink caffeine, and specifically coffee, to combat headaches. I personally suffer from chronic migraines and wanted to open with this lovely piece of poetry as a way of transitioning out of mythological accounts of coffee into literary. At this point in her story, coffee is spread out of Europe and into their respective colonies. With that said, this episode, we will continue looking at coffee history in the Netherlands and Germany. And then next episode, we will wrap up Italy, Austria, and France. I did not intend for this series to cover so much information, but coffee has a much larger history than I think any of us could have ever imagined. With that said, don't worry if it starts to becoming hard to keep all the various parts of history in your brain, as I will use episode 10 as a recap of everything covered up to that point. For now, the Dutch were the first Europeans to grow coffee trees. After Peter Vanderbroek, a merchant from the Netherlands, stole coffee from the port of Mocha in Yemen in 1616, he took the coffee back to Amsterdam and planted them in the botanical gardens there. The coffee thrived in the gardens, and by 1658, the Dutch were growing their coffee in Ceylon, later expanding into southern India. They soon shifted focus from India to Java, however. The Ottoman Empire, in response to growing European consumption of coffee, imposed an export ban in 1707, which prevented coffee from leaving the country. So, to solve this coffee shortage and eventual coffee ban, the Dutch were able to get coffee plantations in Java after Nicholas Whitsund became the governor of the Dutch East Indian Company in 1693. Legend has it, Whitsund obtained coffee from the Dutch governor of Malabar in southern India. He sent Arabica coffee seeds to Batavia in 1696, seeds which supposedly came from Baba Budin's stolen coffee. Batavia is known today as Jakarta, the capital of Java, an island which is part of Indonesia, located just north of Australia, and where we get the name for the coffee-based drink. With this new coffee supply in Java, the Netherlands could get their coffee without concern of the previous Ottoman monopoly on coffee. This initial batch of coffee beans failed due to flooding, but three years later, in 1699, Seeds were sent over again that flourished. By 1711, the coffee was growing so successfully, they were able to export it back to Europe through the Dutch East Indian Trading Company. Within a few years, the Dutch colonies of Java and Suriname, a country in South America, were supplying most of the coffee in Europe. Unlike in most other European countries, the Netherlands allowed women greater access to coffee. In fact, even lower-class women often owned coffee-making equipment in Amsterdam. By 1726, some even stated coffee, quote, has broken through so generally in our land that 
maids and seamstresses now have to have their coffee in the morning, or they cannot put their thread through the eye of their needle. End quote. In 1717, 2,000 pounds of coffee were shipped by the Dutch to Europe, making it the first place outside of historical Ethiopia and Yemen to grow coffee in such large quantities. Javanese coffee at this time sold in Amsterdam for three guiders per kilo. A kilo was just over two pounds. To put that into context, the average income in the Netherlands was between 200 and 400 guiders per year. This would mean roughly two pounds of coffee would cost someone what they might make in around three to six days worth of work. Or in other words, it would be like going to the grocery store today to get a bag of coffee, and it ended up costing what you make in a full work week. By the end of the century, coffee dropped in price to just 0.6 guiders per kilo, allowing coffee to become an everyman's drink rather than just for the wealthy. As mocha was replaced by the port of Java, Java II would become replaced by the Dutch Latin American colony of Guiana in 1712 after it began exporting coffee to Amsterdam in 1718. The French East Indian Company began harvesting coffee on the island of Bourbon in 1715, and Guiana, along with Bourbon, both began the tradition of African slave labor on coffee plantations. For two and a half centuries, the Netherlands was the primary coffee grower, beginning in 1616 with the coffee they snuck out of Mocha, until the 1840s when Brazil began growing coffee in mass quantities and outpaced Dutch colonies in coffee production. Part of this was due to Indonesian farmers who were forced to produce export crops for the Dutch under the cultivation system known as tankpaksa, or enforced planting by Indonesians. This devastating system was illuminated in the novel Max Havelock, or the coffee auctions of the Dutch trading company. This work shifted public opinion in the Netherlands on the cultivation system and colonialism. Max Havelar was adopted as the name of one of the first fair trade organizations. In the Netherlands today, many coffee shops sell cannabis products. In fact, some Dutch cafes sell more cannabis products than actual coffee. There is this distinction, however, with coffee houses only selling coffee and traditional pastries, while cafes may sell cannabis products. The latter distinguishes itself oftentimes by using the palm tree symbol or the Ethiopian flag to suggest cannabis products as the direct advertisement of it is illegal. This is interesting, however, with the Ethiopian flag, from which coffee originated has become a very different symbol for coffee shops. There are now coffee shops in the U.S. and Canada that allow marijuana on the premises. Shifting now to Germany, as you will remember, the first mention of coffee by any European was by a German, Leonard Rauf, in 1582. He stated, quote, They take a fruit called bunu, which in its bigness, shape, and color is almost like onto a bayberry, with two thin shells surrounded, which as they inform me are brought from the Indies. But until I am better informed by the learned, this liquor is very common among them, Wherefore, there are a great many of them that sell it, and others that sell the berries everywhere in their bazaars. Adam Orlerius, a German Orientalist, was sent on government business to Persia from 1633 to 1636, publishing his account when he returned. 
He stated, quote, they drink with their tobacco a certain black water, which they called kawa, mate of a fruit brought out of Egypt, and which is color like ordinary wheat and is the bigness of a little bean, end quote. And went on to add the Persians believe it reduces natural heat. When I was working at Starbucks, I often wondered how people could drink hot drinks in the summer, but as it turns out, consuming hot liquids actually helps to regulate body temperature. And for those who are wondering how this works, it's because you raise your core body temperature by drinking something which is hotter than your core body temperature, resulting in an increase in sweat, which, once evaporated, will result in an overall cooldown. Now, personally, I'm going to stick with a good old ice-cold drink on a warm summer day, but there is some validity to drinking hot drinks to help regulate your body temperature. Now, apparently in 1637, it still wasn't possible to get an iced coffee. However, as Johannes Albrecht von Mandelsloh in his work, Oriental Trip, talks about, quote, the black water of the Persians called Kawa, end quote, which he stated, must be drunk hot. Entering the country in 1669, first coffee houses were established in northern Germany at the ports of Kiel in 1673 and Hamburg in 1679. The first coffee shop in Hamburg was opened by an Englishman, influencing Germany with British-style coffeehouse culture. As we will see, though, at first Germans used the word coffee, like English, but switched to café, preferring the French word café. Coffee took off in popularity among the ruling class in the 18th century, but we will see examples as early as great elector Frederick William I of Brandenburg having coffee served at his court in 1675. Cities like Regensburg, Leipzig, and Nuremberg opened coffee houses between 1689 and 1696. Stuttgart and Augsburg got their first coffee shops in 1712 and 13. Berlin was the last major city in Germany to open a coffee house, as the Prussian royal court opposed coffee houses and, as a result, did not get their own coffee house until 1721. That same year saw Leonhard Ferdinand Meisner publish a work on coffee, chocolate, and natural herbs out of Nuremberg. Also in 1721, Frederick William allowed a foreigner to run a coffee shop rent-free in Berlin, known as the English Coffee House. Much of England's coffee influence in northern Germany comes from the supply of coffee which they offered the country, while southern Germany was supplied coffee by Italy. Now, the coffee shop which Frederick allowed to open rent-free in Lutzgarten, or in English, Pleasure Garden, was opened with the intention as a place for the Prussian royal circle to spend their time. Philip Falk opened several Jewish coffee houses in Berlin on Spandersraus. By the reign of Frederick the Great, there were a dozen coffee houses in Berlin. The suburbs around Berlin offered coffee as well, often out of tents. Leipzig opened its first coffee shop in 1694 and saw the first coffee periodical, The New and Cautious Coffee House, published there in 1707 by Theophilo Georgi. While an important part of coffee culture in Germany, Leipzig is better known for Bach, 
who conducted a musical ensemble at Café Zimmerman there, eventually composing Coffee Cantata, sometime between 1732 and 35. Christian Frederick Heinrich wrote the libretto of the song, libretto referring to the text of an opera about coffee culture in the 18th century in Germany. He wrote, quote, How good the coffee tastes, lovelier than a thousand kisses, milder than a musket wine. Coffee, coffee, I've got to have it, end quote. In the song, the character Leischen talks about marriage, saying, quote, No suitor is to come to my house unless he promises me, and it is also written to the marriage contract that I will be allowed to make myself a coffee whenever I want one, end quote. Apparently, without her, quote, little cup of coffee three times a day, in my anguish, I will turn into a shriveled up roast goat, end quote. The song goes on to state, quote, young girls will stay faithful to their coffee. The mother holds coffee dear. The grandmother drink it too, end quote. Clearly, women in German society were known to enjoy coffee. This is interesting when we consider that Café Zimmermann was not open to women. This is a reoccurring trend in coffee's history, as a drink cherished by many women, yet the establishments which serve it were often only open to men. Women were allowed to attend public concerts held at Zimmermann, however. There was also a coffee garden by the coffee house in the summer. Built in 1715, Café Zimmermann hosted the Collegium Musicum from 1720 until 1741, when Zimmermann passed away. The Collegium Musicum hosted free concerts to the public, making money only from coffee sales. The coffee house was destroyed in 1943 by Allied bombing during World War II. But today, there is a contemporary Café Zimmermann, which was built in 1998. During the start of the 18th century, warm beer and flour soup were often consumed alongside breakfast, but coffee overtook these in popularity during the second half of the century. In 1766, Frederick the Great of Prussia instituted a state-ran monopoly on imports of coffee and levied higher tax on it. Attempting to reverse coffee's growing popularity, this measure only had limited effects and because Germany lacked any colonies with coffee in 1777, concerned about his people spending too much on coffee from foreign nations, he issued a coffee and beer manifesto. It stated, quote, It is disgusting to notice the increase in the quality of coffee used by my subjects and the amount of money that goes out of the country in consequence. Everybody is using coffee. If possible, this must be prevented. My people must drink beer. His majesty was brought up on beer, and so were his ancestors and his officers. Many battles have been fought and won by soldiers nourished on beer, and the king does not believe that coffee-drinking soldiers can be depended upon to endure hardship or to beat his enemies in case of the occurrence of another war. End quote. Frederick would be surprised by the wars won on coffee, such as the American Civil War in which coffee will play a crucial role. There was also an attempt to support chicory, a product which could be grown locally in place of coffee, but this failed to gain popularity. This ban failed miserably, so in 1781, 
Frederick created a royal monopoly on coffee roasting. Coffee in the second half of the 18th century in Prussia was essentially a delicacy for the rich who could afford the highly taxed item or could gain special license to roast coffee themselves. The less well-off members of society were forced to purchase coffee from the black market or to drink a substitute like chicory, wheat, or dried figs. The aristocracy were required to purchase their coffee from the king at a steep price, but as a result, having a license to roast coffee became a status symbol. This reflects the culture of coffee in Ukraine at this time. But generally, only the upper class were drinking coffee and tea. While this is largely due to the costs related to coffee, Germany took it one step further beyond the royal monopoly on roasting and added a campaign of propaganda. Coffee was said to cause men to be sterile and especially to make women infertile, further enforcing the concept of coffee not being a drink for women. Part of Frederick's monopoly on coffee following 1781 was the enforcement of his edict by a man named Count de Lenay. Lenay was given a task force to spy on the people of Prussia, acting like the modern American war on drugs. Their job was to search for coffee by smelling for the roasting of it, so became nicknamed coffee smellers. They were paid 25% of whatever fine was collected on the coffee contraband. Continuing this trend of coffee as a drink of the upper class, in 1784, Maximilian Frederick, Bishop of Munster, issued a manifesto which stated, quote, The coffee beverage has become so extended that to counteract the evil, we command that four weeks after the publication of this decree, no one shall sell coffee roasted or not roasted under a fine of $100 or two years in prison for each offense. Every coffee roasting and coffee serving place shall be closed and dealers and hotel keepers are to get rid of their coffee supplies in four weeks. It is only permitted to obtain from the outside coffee for one's own consumption in lots of 50 pounds, end quote. So what he's saying here is coffee is evil, so in four weeks there will be a fine or jail time placed on coffee consumption unless a person can afford to buy 50 pounds at a time. Clearly, this is a tactic to make coffee a drink of the rich, as only they could afford 50 pounds of coffee at one time. Tune in next time as we continue with coffee's journey in France, Austria, and Italy. This show is written and produced by me, Eric Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in the series. This episode, we will be giving away a custom, complete history of coffee apron to one of our Patreon members. Make sure to join our communities on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you may message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and make sure to share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and that random person on Facebook you haven't talked to in over a decade. To close, here's a quote from Pope Leo XIII. Last comes the beverage of the Orient shore, mocha. Far off the fragrant berries bore. 
Taste the dark fluid with the dainty lip. Digestion waits on pleasure as you sip. <laughs>